Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Aileen Morton-Robinson is a Golanpur woman of the Kwandamuka people and is Professor of Indigenous Research at RMIT University. This year she was appointed a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the first ever Indigenous scholar from Australia to be elected. She's also the author of a number of books, including Talking Up to the White Woman, which is a seminal text uh, released 20 years ago that looks at Indigenous women's views and experiences within the context of Western feminism. The 20th anniversary edition of the book is being released tomorrow through University of Queensland Press, but it has never been out of print. Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson, what an honour it is to have you on The Wrap. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for um, actually inviting me onto your program. So I want to start by asking you about writing and releasing the first edition of Talking Up to the White Woman 20 years ago. What did you think would come of the research and, of course, the book? Ah, that's a good question. I suppose um, I didn't. I, I sort of um, didn't really have any kind of expectation, I guess, about the book because I had um, never written a book before, um, and so I didn't think that it would do as well as what it has. Um, you know, the book. Um, yeah, has taken me, I guess, I, I, I say that, you know, it's taken me all around the world. It just hasn't taken me around Australia. Um, and so the book, in that sense, I think certainly uh, exceeded any kind of expectation that I had of it. You say that it's taking you around the world and not around Australia. I have also I've also noticed that in the last since I've read it in um, the last kind of eight or so years that um, the book is so seminal and it is so you know important and something that was quite um, life changing for me to read. But seeing you doing work outside of Australia or being invited to do stuff outside of Australia, not so much in Australia. Do you know why that that might be? I think, well, now, I guess, upon hindsight, I, I realised that um, it really was a book before its time mm. and probably some would even say so now. And I say that because Australia has never really been um, interested in having, uh, you know, proper discussions about race and racism and particularly public discussions. It, you know, the public discussions that we've had in the past 20 years are about dismissing the idea that racism exists, usually by older white men who grow up under the white Australia policy, uh, such as John Howard, um, Alan Jones. Um, you know, so we... You know, I, I think that a big reason that... Um, it didn't get taken up. Is it's just that Australia wasn't ready for that that discussion, and some would argue that it still isn't because we don't teach critical race studies or even race studies in any of the curricula. You cannot do a major in in race studies in this country in any university. 
And that speaks to me about the degree to which um, racism, I guess, permeates even the production of knowledge here. Um, so if we can, at one level, think about universities being the knowledge production factories and the knowledge production factories themselves that influence and shape ideas out in society, is not willing to actually even locate it an epistemological place within the curriculum, then what hope have we for educating, I guess, the masses who really can only, you know, draw on more or less their emotional and psychological uh, experiences, I guess, of uh, Aborigines, which are fed through the media. It's amazing. You're absolutely right because I remember studying undergrad and really craving that, right, and then trying to find all the subjects in a Bachelor of Arts that related to race somehow and then every single time being incredibly disappointed because it didn't quite go there or it was just like one week within the 12 weeks. So I absolutely see exactly what you're talking about. What was the response from Indigenous women um, from the book? Um, I think that um, it was, there were some Aboriginal women that it, you know, just blew them away and they just kept saying to me, you're actually saying in the book what we've been thinking for a long time. Um, and, you know, it does speak from our experience. Um, so the, the response was really uh, quite um, positive and uh, also from Indigenous men. Um, you know, I have to uh, shout out to uh, Professor Lester Irabina Rigney, who has always been a, uh, an avid supporter, but he also was one of the uh, first males, I think, to kind of think through it, teach with it. Um, so, it, it, you know, it has had an influence in terms of the uh, Indigenous academia, I guess, mm. of, of my, my generation. And you've got to remember, that's a very small group of people. Very small, right? So so that so the book is actually, you know, my dissertation turned into a book. I, at that point, was number 22, who had a PhD in Australia. And out of that 22, 10 of those were in theology. So it's actually 12, only 12 of us were actually in the academy. Um, so it's a very small group of people. Uh, now I'm pleased to say um, in large part again to quite a lot of my efforts in the sector uh, with the National uh, Indigenous Research and Knowledge Network and policy work that I've done in higher education that we now have um, you know over 500 graduates I think it is in PhDs and also the work of you know other Indigenous uh, women like Bronwyn Fredericks uh, fabulous uh, leader um, and uh, Larissa Berent, um, you know, women who, who basically have looked out for women and enabled other women, I guess, to come through to complete their, their PhDs. And um, Jill Mulroy as well over in uh, Western Australia. So there are a number of uh, women who I think uh, the book spoke to, but also have been actively participating in enabling uh, the development of our um, ac our black academia in Australia. Um, but we're still, again, in, in terms of universities, the employment rate is not great. Um, and 
there is, as I think we can see from the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of people concerned about racism in this country. Uh, so one would assume that this uh, is an opportunity to in, increase enrolments for universities by making, a, a, you know, instead of a, a, a policy initiative around race and racism is to actually say what we want to do is this part of the curriculum, this is stuff that we must teach, this is a substantive field of intellectual inquiry in other countries and it should be uh, one of the uh, core things here. In the humanities, which of course we then realise <laughs> with, the, with the government cuts, that um, <laughs> humanities is one of the areas going to, to, to suffer. So it's, you know, it's quite kind of uh, paradoxical that at one level where we see the public um, outcry against racism and the one place that it, where, where we can get some kind of traction in terms of uh, intellectual inquiry into it, uh, which doesn't now exist, um, and the area where it would be housed in humanities is cut. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to not um, say that it's like an ideological move, right? Like, it's difficult to not feel personally attacked by, attacked by it in given the exact moment that this was released and also the fact that students are not on campus and won't really be able to protest in the same ways that they would have otherwise. It's a, it's a really, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> It is. I And I think that, uh, you know, we have seen the drift away from the Bachelor of Arts mm. for the last couple of years. Um, and that's been purposeful in the way in which universities have become far more orientated to the market and far more orientated to now we're seeing, you know, uh, for jobs. And, of course, this is the government's agenda, I must say, rather than... Uh, uh, you know, that it's something that the universities have, you know, deliberately done. This has been shaped very much by, by government. Um, and uh, it, it, what it's doing effectively is changing the nature and the role of universities. Um, sorry. Yeah. Yes? No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, I read Talking Up to the White Woman when I was in the, when I was in undergrad. It was not required reading at the time, but I had a friend suggest that I read it, and um, it was maybe my first or second year and at university, and I was starting to read Bell Hooks and Audrey Lord and Angela Davis and speaking with my mum and my friends. It was like my um, black feminist awakening kind of moment, that understanding that white feminism never really sat right with me or made sense to me or I didn't feel like that was something that I was part of. When did you start being able to articulate your feelings and opinions about where Indigenous women sit or don't sit within the context of Western feminism? Ah, that's an interesting question because I never did any under, anything on gender and feminism in my undergraduate studies uh, at all. So I taught myself feminism as I actually wrote the dissertation. Um, and I fell into that quite, and I always think that the ancestors shape what I do, because my my dissertation at the time I was going down the road of actually looking at Indigenous women's um, participation in decision making around native title, and um, the elder women after six months I'd been attending meetings and. Uh, and I had their approval to go down, you know, to actually do the research. 
But after six months and they could see the way things are going, they politely asked me not to continue with that um, uh, project because it could have political ramifications for the, um, you know, for the native title um, case that we were putting up. And at that time, our case really was about um, making a... Com- it, was a it wasn't actually native title. It was like common law. So we mm. were sort of going uh, under, under common law. But what happened uh, from that was... It, and I had, in that six months, read well, this literature because I thought, all right, so I really need to think about how women... What, what research has been done on women's uh, participation in decision-making. And so I thought... I, I, so I had to read the feminist literature. Um, and so I'd covered all of... You know, I'd read all this stuff and I still kind of couldn't find um, lots of empirical studies about uh, women's uh, decision-making. And so when um, when I was basically told that this the research shouldn't proceed along the lines of Indigenous women's decision-making, I had to sort of think about, well, what could I do? Because I'd already done all this work and um, that... But, but the thing, I guess, that I realised in doing all of that work was how this middle-class white subject position was centred in the theorising. So that that was something that I learnt in teaching myself feminism, but also in the exploration for trying to, you know, gain some kind of insights about women's decision-making. So that's how I fell into it. Um, And it was... was, But but it was also an awakening after years of... um, being treated quite differently as, a, as an Aboriginal woman to the white women that were in the workplace uh, with me. So I had an idea, uh, you know, at, at that time I'd kind of not really understood the uh, the way in which race and gender um, were functioning in terms of my embodiment as opposed to the way in which uh, whiteness and gender was functioning in terms of white women's embodiment and how, how white patriarchy uh, was, um, uh, I guess, hmm, how can I say it? So patriarchy really worked to separate. And, uh, the, the, you know, you've got to, I guess I should contextualise this. You know, I'm talking about the 70s mm. uh, when... when um, you know, there wasn't any legislation in terms of domestic violence, all of those things, no sexual harassment, uh, legislation to protect women. So, so it was a, you know, it was a time in, in the workforce where you could see things operating um, and the impact of patriarchy in the way in which um, the, it produced a particular kind of gendered politics, I guess, in the workplace. So, so I was aware of that from experience, but... Uh, because I had no language, I guess, to talk about it, um, it, uh, I, you know, I, I, but I knew that, you know, I could see that there were things that were different. So in coming to read the feminist literature, lots of things fell into place for me in terms of those experiences. It's amazing because... And, 
Sorry, go No, on. sorry. Yeah. Um, I just think it's amazing because um, you're talking about, you know, the 1970s and I'm thinking about being in a campus or within a context, any kind of context of um, women, Indigenous women, black women, women of colour um, and white women and seeing actually the way that these different communities interact interact with each other and I just want to talk about anger for a minute because you mentioned that um, in the uh, essay at the very beginning of this new edition and it's really it's really amazing because I'm a I'm a black African woman and I've worked in mainstream media in the past and I've lived here my whole life and one of the um, most difficult moments to articulate particularly in the moment is the um, the perception of being really, really angry within progressive or seemingly progressive spaces and how my emotions can be weaponised against me um, by white people or white women. And it's just one of those, it's just one of those experiences that we have. It's an experience that my mum has warned me about. I know a lot of people have spoken <laughs> spoken to their daughters about it. Um, and it's something that I think is spoken about all the time, but it also happens all the time. Can you help me unpack where that narrative of anger and then in opposition to that fear comes from? Well, the, well the, you know, it, it, it's classic racial, racial trope, isn't it, in the mm. sense that the angry black woman. And, you know, it... it in doing that, what they are basically saying is you, you're not a person of reason, unlike them. You're, you don't have rationality. You are totally driven by your emotion. Uh, and uh, so you can, you, we should dismiss you on the basis that, you know, as an as a irrational being, um, what you say uh, cannot be taken with, uh, cannot be given any credit. Mm. Right? So it, in that sense, it is, a, it is racist in that it, it, it works through that idea, those ideas that come out of the Enlightenment about who is the person of reason, like who, you know, the way in which the Cartesian subjects develops of the mind-body split and how men have uh, fundamentally used that against women. You know, women, women are embodied, women are close to nature, women are angry, and black women are really, we're really angry yeah. um, because... And, when in actual fact, all that usually is being expressed is frustration. Right? We get frustrated. We get frustrated because we're up against the racism. And, you know, as I continually say to people, I'm in Groundhog Day. You know, it's, it's just the repetition wears you down. And the frustration is that, um, you know, you you also can see what they're doing to you in putting you into the category of angry black. So it's not, so the violence of it is not just about the fact that you're being told that you're angry, but it's also how you bear witness to the, the way in which this racism is actually positioning you in a particular way. So it's two things. It's the utterance of it, that you are this angry thing, read irrational. Um, and, and, and when you know that, <laughs> you and you have to bear it, right? So you have to kind of so there's a you know there's a, a violence, an epistemological violence that occurs in the way in which um, you get treated, and and the fact is, you know the other the, the question is more to the point is why is it that they think they don't get angry? Right. <laughs> 
right. The que- that's the question. The question is more about, and why is anger perceived to be so problematic? And what does that say about patriarchal whiteness and anger? You know, and what does, you know, and again, coming back to the mind-body split, I was thinking uh, about the um, the High Court judge that just um, basically got outed over sexual harassment. Um, you know, and people writing on Twitter is, oh, how could this happen and blah, blah. And you go, well, of course it can happen because particularly in the law, the mind-body split is all-pervasive in terms of the separation between the professional and the personal. Right, so that, you know, people would know that he had done that, but because of the status that he held um, and, the, and the professionalism supposedly around it in terms of confidentiality, because lawyers are very much, you know, schooled in maintaining confidence, that those very things basically discursively work against people saying something. So even though men could see what, I believe, you know, other lawyers knew what he had happened, they wouldn't say anything because they would perceive that as personal rather than professional. Do you see what I'm saying? Like Absolutely. So, so that, that, right? So that kind of... Uh, the way in which the, you know, the, uh, the binary oppositions work, the way in which the English language is structured and the kind of um, epistemological conditions that are imposed on context really mean that um, you're always up against this thing that perceives it uh, itself as being objective. Like I had to, like I watched, uh, well, I didn't watch, I was actually, found myself busting out laughing at Alan Jones's new, um, uh, he's on Sky News and he's saying, you know, please watch me for an evaluated and objective um, approach to what's going on out there. And I, And the rest of the sentence for me was from a very, tainted subjective position <laughs> you know like yeah so, so you know and so that you know you can see kind of like and it's why i guess for me it's why i'm more interested in how knowledge is produced and and how racialized knowledge is produced and what that makes what that does to the way in which people think and do um and uh whereas a lot of people tend to think of, uh, you know, let me let me go backwards, so that if we say that institutional racism exists, right, and it does, and then people ask you those questions, well, how can we change the organisation? You sit, you know, and then, of course, you come up with your lovely, we have diversity and inclusion, right? And these are ways in which we can get more black people, more Indigenous people, more people of colour into the institution, Yes. So you can see that it, that employment policies go, oh, yes, well, I think that we should uh, be far more inclusive and this is how we're going to change things. When in actual fact, you know that really what's going to happen is that the organisation accrues uh, moral value out of what it's doing. And usually with very little effect, concrete effect in terms of employment for people. And if they are employed, they're usually at the bottom. So that you're not actually changing um, racism by assuming that notions of inclusivity are going to work because the very nature of the inclusivity itself actually allows for exclusion to operate while you're being included. Yeah. So it's the logics around the way in which these things work which um, interests me 
um, and interests me in terms of the way in which we need to think more and race and how... Um, and if you don't, you know, and, and to get people to understand this, like if you, if, if you don't understand... Like, I'm, I, I, even though I, you know, I sort of sometimes think that... Um, um, I, I mean, I, I love that uh, phrase from Cornell West where he says, um, you know, I'm certainly not an optimist, but I remain forever a prisoner of hope. Mm. Um, I, I think that that's me. I, I was going uh, you know. to ask you about that because in in the last 20 years, um, I, I couldn't say that anything has changed. Maybe things have changed in in your eyes. What have you seen progress? Mm, you see, that's a difficult question. Mm. How do you measure? How do you measure progress? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I've just so in giving you the scenario, I guess about the inclusiveness, right? So, so the way in which Aboriginal people in this country have been dealt with in terms of, um, you know, after after the seventies when we pushed the sovereignty movement and land rights movement were full on and, uh, you know, we were exposing the deaths in custody back then. Rallies were... Like, there was... We were in the public in a way in which we'd never been before. And um, we were no longer out of sight, out of mind on reserves and missions. Mm. We were in the city streets. So it made it really difficult, I guess, for white Australia to not see us. And that's also one of the... Um, one of the keys to understanding race in this country that's different to America is that, you know, first of it was the, the fact that the assumption we would die and then it was the assumption we need to take them and put them somewhere where nobody can see them. Um, so in that sense, race became hidden um, and, we're at, and, and dealt with when it was dealt with in terms of policy legislation not dealt with as a you know an intellectual field of inquiry as as it does as it does exist in other colonies um, in terms of hope and progression I think that um, because of the resilience of indigenous women women of color and black women we have actually gained some ground and the ground that I think we've we've gained is the ground that we have created for ourselves, right? So uh, I think what I find, um, I had done a, a um, I spoke at the Wheeler Centre in November last year, which mm. is probably, and it had been 10 years since I'd spoken on anything to do with feminism, which was interesting in and of itself. Um, but I think that we, we have at least got numbers, we are mobilising and we are talking back. Uh, when I wrote uh, Talking Up to the White Woman, the only like the only other book at that time, I think, was Jackie Hogan's Sister Girl. Mm. Um, but the, um, the book was, like, really uh, not accepted really well by, within the feminist community. And I'd, I'd say, it's, you know, it's still doesn't sort of sit really well, but um, it, is a, it is a book that I think has, has made interventions um, in ways in which I, I never actually um, thought it would. And from that point of view, at least, for example, we're having these conversations. Right. 
like we're having these conversations now. If you want me to talk about it in terms of the, has it created any material effects, I could say um, probably not. Yeah. But I never had that expectation for it. Um, and uh, the question becomes, you know, what books produce material effects? I mean, it's a, again, that's, a, I suppose, a question that, well, it's not something that can be answered in a radio program. Um, one one kind of worry that I have is that there's a lot of language that is um, language that you've used in um, your work and language that has been used around the world, language like decolonisation, language like intersectionality, and people are starting to use these words and then they're, they're becoming buzzwords and I've, se- I've seen that and I've seen that, you know, if you really engage with what this thinking is, it's more than just kind of ticking a box or whatever. And I have a, I have a worry that um, the language is there but the actual tangible giving up power is not quite there yet and I don't think that they're moving at the same, at the same rate. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a book called The White Possessive. Mm. <laughs> yep. You know, like, I mean, you know, that's the, I mean, that's the... That what I try and demonstrate in there is fundamentally, again, the, the possessive logics. You know how how um, how you can be seen, and that that example I was talking about before in um, how there's there's the organisations can be seen to be doing something, mm. and that's enough. Right, so we can talk the language of inclusion, we can talk reconciliation, we can talk diversity. Um, and we can have wonderful, you know, motherhood statements about them, and we can. Uh, but in terms of real, real um, outcomes, where you look at the numbers of people that are employed, there it isn't there. And yet, if you were to kind of raise questions about uh, why haven't we reached our targets, the questions are around. Oh, you know, well, we don't have. Um, um, market here for that but we do but we're trying our best so it's the sense in which you are included and that's what I'm saying there's the the inclusion is actually an exclusion right so you're included to a certain point but you're excluded from that point so the the um it's like decolonization is you know I mean I I actually find decolonization as a uh, as a word, you know, problematic because I know what Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. think that's what it is, but that's not necessarily how it gets taken up when it's uh, by um, white scholars. And, you know, in order to decolonise, you have to give up power. I really don't see anybody rushing to do that. Um, and, you know, and, and again, I come back to the point after... Um, Writing, you know, when when I got to the end of the, the dissertation, I realised that there are all these theories about power, what power is, you know, in its many forms, different kinds of power, but nobody really, um, ex- except Marx, uh, who basically thought that we should have a revolution, um, but nobody really has done the work around how do you, how you did you theorise giving up power? What would that look like? Um, and it's um, and yet 
you know, working, living, grown-up Aboriginal in a community on an island. Um, I, I saw, like, power, power is relational. And it is about, it works when you share. Right, so it's about it's not it's not, not kind of like a, this utopian idea where you think, oh well, we're all just the same. It's not about that. The fluidity and fixivity of power relations um, is really interesting in how they work in Aboriginal communities. And um, I think that you know there are, and of course we we have uh, you know we have fights over power. It's not as though we don't. But there also is a sense in which people will want to share power. Um, more so than, um, you know, wanting to um, be the powerful, although we have some men in our community who think that that's... And they mimic patriarchy, of course, I mean, colonisation contaminates in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think that there's a sense in which we need to think as, as a species about our relationship to everything else, and that is about the understanding... Like, my idea of sharing power is to really understand who you are as a human and what your relationship is to other non-living things and living things besides humans. You know, humans have put themselves at the top of the uh, height, the food chain, and they are extractive in their behaviours and consumptive, and they do things to all these others around us uh, because they they believe in human superiority, and um, that's not going to work. And it, and what we're seeing in terms of you know climate change mm-hmm. is that it's not working because our you know human superiority is fundamentally undermining its own existence. And uh, I mean that's the irony, isn't it? Yeah. So so it's a wake up call, big wake up call here. We really have to basically change. The way we think, way we are as humans, in terms of the logics of capital, right? So, so the capitalism model is fundamentally flawed. It is not good for anybody. Yeah. It's not good for the planet. It's not good plant for the animals. It's not, you know, it's not. It's it's. Um, so I I, my work is really trying, I guess, to bring those bigger questions into play. To understand that, you know, the logics of racism really tell us a lot about the logics of superiority, yeah, and the way in which humans um, don't just treat other humans in that kind of way, um, they treat animals in that way, Mm. they treat trees in that way, they treat sand in that way, yep. Yeah. So it's it's the it's the sense in which we have or humans have um and, and when I say humans here I'm talking about those that actually think that they're at the top of the you know, the the chain and that's white male have been responsible for a great many deeds mm-hmm. um that have caused um a great deal of pain and misery for you know, humans and non-humans. It's it's, um, a, it's amazing because it's such an um, an overwhelming kind of 
thinking shift. So I, I always think about, you know, what are the small things that we can do to get to the point that um, is the inevitable ultimate outcome, right? For a lot of people, for a lot of people around the whole world, the ultimate um, outcome is the same and it's what you're what you're talking about um and so then when I see little things happen that hopefully get us to that point and then realize that actually it's all just like lip service it it's quite an overwhelmingly um disappointing (laughs) disappointing experience but then I read you know the beginning of this 20th edition of talking up to white woman I didn't realize it was 20 years old either my copy is about seven or eight years old and it's just sitting (laughs) sitting in my room and I realized that you know there's so much more to do but there's so much thinking and working and learning and unlearning that has been done across the board um with a lot of people and so it it does make me hopeful and I'm very thankful to you for your time and for your work and for your thinking um, and for the fact that this book was never out of print. I could buy it seven years ago and it wasn't a problem. <laughs> well, look, it, it, it's been a pleasure and I um, I appreciate the time given um, for me to wax on lyrically about, you know, things. Um, I, uh, I just hope that, um, you know, it's really up to your generation and it's up to my grandchildren's generation mm-hmm. to fight for this planet. And um, I I would like to think that, you know, we also need to fight for the ability to think with and through these ideas, through the humanities within universities. Mm-hmm. Uh, there should be an absolute outcry about the fact that the humanities is being treated in this way. You know, it is it is you know one area where we actually are taught to think about what it is to be human. Yeah. You know, and and that is far more important in terms of our survival. Uh, I would argue than building a robot. I would agree. <laughs> so probably on that note, <laughs> I'm assuming we're out of time. We are out of time. Uh, when, I mean, I could chat with you until the end of this show, which is at midday. <laughs> but, there, but there is some music to be played and another guest to yes, speak absolutely. to. Um, but it has been such an honour to chat with you. After reading your work and coming back to your work for so many years, it it's really special to me that you've come on the show and you've and, and we've had a chat and it would be amazing if we could continue this into the future. Look, can I can I just make a plug? My son is a uh, a, a musician and he has an album. He has albums out. And he's written a song called Many Who Pretend. His name is Adam James. And if you could play that song... Uh, sometime today um, because it it basically speaks, I guess, to what I've been saying. Excellent. Uh, I think I can definitely play that song. I think I might even be able to play that song just in a moment, which is great. I'm hoping we can play it right after this interview, which I think would sound super sweet and also would keep us in context and make it relevant and a family affair. Which is always oh, absolutely. <laughs> and he's look, he's got a new album coming out. I try and promote him because not because he is my son, but because he basically is extremely talented and has a beautiful voice. Um, and he writes some interesting songs. And I think um, 
you know, he on his first album he wrote a, a, a piece about losing his grandmother and it's uh, called Letter to Nana and, oh, my goodness, that just, you know, everybody hears it just nearly starts crying. Um, but I, I, uh, I do think that, you know, we... Honesty to me and to Aboriginal people is the main thing, right? If I can, if I can end on this note. Whereas, what we're up against all the time is pretension, mm-hmm. right? People pretending, people pretending, pretending to include you, pretending to actually understand you, pretending to care about what happens, you know. And um, so that's kind of what the song is about. Amazing. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm going to exit now, and thank you very much again for having me on the program. Thank you so much right. for your time. You. I'm thank going you. to um, play that song in a minute. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Aileen Morton-Robinson is a Gompal woman of the Kwandamuka people and is Professor of Indigenous Research at RMIT University. This year she was appointed a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the first ever Indigenous scholar from Australia to be elected. She's also the author of a number of books, including Talking Up to the White Woman, which is a seminal text released 20 years ago that looks at Indigenous women's views and experiences within the context of Western feminism. The 20th anniversary edition of the book is being released tomorrow through University of Queensland Press but it has never been out of uh, print. Sigiramo is an artist based in Sydney and he's just released his new album, Black Thoughts, and he's on the line with me. How are you doing? Good. How are you going? Yeah, not bad. It's the last kind of half hour of the show where, you know, I've been here for two and a half hours already, so I'm ready to play some music, chat with some cool people, but also... Get get out of here! So it's good to have you on. <laughs> no, I bet. Well, I hope I can uh, make the the last stand uh, a little bit easier for you. Well, look, it's not it's not torture. It's not hard. I love being here. <laughs> I just want to get that straight. I mean, if if this album is anything to go by, I'm absolutely sure you will. And I know that you've been working on some of these tracks for a while, or they have been made for a while. Um, why did you choose to release now? Yeah, so I uh, wrote this album five years ago and hadn't touched it since. Um, For me, you know, like I'm an independent artist, kind of navigating throughout the industry, like when I was younger, just trying to kind of find my footing. And I felt like uh, when I showed people this album, it wasn't kind of a lot of support within the industry. And then also just, you know, I just... um, for me, it was a very healing process writing it. So mm. once I finished it, like, I didn't feel, like, this huge urge to get it out. Like, I did, but at the same time, I just didn't feel like we as Australia were ready to hear it. Um, and then fast forward to May 25th, 2020, um, with the murder of George Floyd, mm. uh, I think it uh, kind of changed the context of... Um, the conversation and conversations we'd been putting off having uh, were kind of brought to our attention. Um, so for me, kind of seeing Australia pointing finger at America and kind of sitting on our high horse uh, when, you know, the same thing is going on in our own country, for me it kind of was just like I felt it in my gut that uh, it was just the right time to put it out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, as an independent artist, I kind of had that freedom yeah. to to be able to turn that around and and get it out within like 72 hours. 
I mean, it's amazing on one hand, but also incredibly devastating on the other hand that you sat on this project for five years and it is not only still relevant, it is overwhelmingly relevant, right? It's too relevant almost. Yeah, it's... uh that that was what was, I guess, so devastating about it is like, yeah, you know, five years ago I wrote this and it's it's speaking to people today and, uh, you know, for the change that I think I really want, what I realise is like, yes, there was a window of opportunity and the fact that people are, are more receptive to listen to this album right now, but at the same time, it, it's a long game. Like, we're, we're trying to change uh, systematic oppression, like structures that have we've upheld for, for a long time. So I think for me in my gut, what I felt was the sooner I get this album out, the the more time people have to digest it and, and share it and, and uh, kind of get their own thoughts and feelings feelings out around it so yeah it's it's it sucks that it's still relevant but at the same time like all we can do is play our part and and we all have a part to play in 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 change it's amazing because i've been listening to your music for a while and i've played it on this show since i since i started doing this show and one thing that i have noticed in what you write and 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 your music is that it is um very you know explicit you're not you're very intentional you don't hold back you say what it is that needs to be said in the words that exactly convey that message and you mentioned that just before that this album was five years ago was healing for you to release is it is it a is it both healing and also like a purpose of being informative or like there must be a lot more than than healing going on in your process Oh, definitely, because it's also, you know, it's also re-traumatizing, like, to have to go through all of this. But at the same time, like, um, I think for me, I was having, like, all all the Black Thoughts albums is just conversations I've been having my whole life. And for me, being able to put it into an album uh, meant that I don't have to have that conversation all the time. Like, I can, you know, people can... um, you know, for me, that's a safe space, like, to be able to go there. Um, and I think for me, like, yes, it, like, it is explicit, it's not filtered, but it's coming from a place of, like, compassion and love mm. and, and understanding because the truth is, is most of Australians don't know our history and, you know, that's no accident. I don't uh, blame people for that. I mean, our, our government has no vested interest in teaching you our history. So for me, it's like, putting it into this resource, like this album for for learning and, and for it to be a resource. So, you know, it, it's, it's very raw at times. Like there's, there's definitely aggression, there's anger, there's pain, there's trauma, but it's all coming from a, a place of, of love and compassion because I care about all of us, you know. This is our home, this is our country, and for me, like, the reason why I hold us accountable is because I care about us so much. Mm. It's amazing because, you know, some of the stuff that you write music about is stuff that people have written, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander journalists have been writing about for a long time and elders have been talking about for a long time and, and people have been, you know, these kind of patterns and systems of oppression have existed in this country since its inception and it's just amazing to me how little 
people in this country do know, you know, like it's not, it's not something that's new, it's not something that hasn't been spoken about before, these things are not um, fresh and a kind of new phenomenon, they've, they've been around since the inception of this country and the, and the fact that people have such narrow and shallow um, understandings of the actual experiences of First Nations people in this country is, is it's bewildering and astounding and, you know, like you said, no accident. Yeah, and I think for me that's uh, like such a poignant point is I always say, like, nothing I say that's half intelligent is an original thought, you know, like all the stories and and conversations that I'm talking about, like in Black Thoughts, it's just, you know, it's from my dad, it's just from my elders, it's from scholars, it's like, you know, we've been talking about this for 220 years, like I'm just in a privileged position to be able to have this space and time to be able to put that into music. Um, so yeah, like no, none of these are like fresh ideas. Like it's none of it's revolutionary. Like it's, it's, it's just kind of repeating like the same sentiment that we've been talking about. And, and I think that's, you know, when we look at driving change forward, it's about like actually listening to indigenous voices and actually having indigenous consultation, like within the fabric of, of our country because we, we are an Indigenous country at the end of the day yeah. um, and we have the capacity to help um, bring this change but it's I think it's about bringing everyone up to speed so that we're all on the same page so that we know like where we've come from before we like are ready to move forward. One thing that's interesting um, is I guess that hip-hop exists as a vehicle for a lot of these types of conversations right in the United States um, in Europe, on the African continent, here in the Caribbean, everywhere, people and mostly black people um, express these very similar experiences across the board. Not the same, but similar experiences across across the board through the vehicle of hip hop. Was that for you, you know, the main source of expression? I think for me, like I've always been expressive. You know, like I was doing drama, like I love art, I love, I just like being creative and for me like art in its truest form is like expression and expression of self and you know like for me as an Indigenous person like we have 50,000 years of knowledge and tradition as an oral culture so words is just like that's innate to me Um, and I think growing up uh, because of like colonialism and, and the forces of that I didn't have that same connection to my culture. So when I came across hip-hop and, like, the stories were different, but I could feel the trauma and and I I felt visible in a way that I didn't feel in my own country a lot of the time. So, you know, uh, that just kind of, I think, became embedded in me and and I, I just, like, I became infatuated with it I just wanted to learn and, and study as, as much as I could because like I felt like there was a space for me but for me what it was was yes like taking that as inspiration but as you said like it's you know it's like similar tra- trauma but like the stories are different and, and I felt as much as I could relate to it at the same time it wasn't my story so you know I felt like it was really important that I told our story like it, it's not you know I'm not um, like telling a story of an American person of like African American struggle, like I'm actually just talking about what's real to me, um, like being authentic to me and, and to our story. But at the same time, like as much as I, I love hip hop and I think it is like 
amazing art form, amazing culture. I think we have our shortcomings mm. and, um, you know, it's really important for me um, to hold, again, us accountable because, you know, we can't uh, be, you know, pro-black but then anti-woman and transphobic, homophobic, misogynistic. Um, and, and I just think that's, you know, like you, you can't try and tear down systems of oppression yet through our language and through our culture uphold others. So mm-hmm. uh, for me, it's, it's such a holistic thing. Like we, we have to understand that the change that we want for ourselves is change for all of us. So, yeah, like I, I think hip hop is a great space, but we have so, so much uh, unlearning and, 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 and relearning and, and, and we need to change because we're not good enough as a culture. Yeah. It's amazing because I often get um, sent lots of music for this show and get pitched people to interview and stuff and as much as I love them and this show centres the voices of, of black people, um, First Nations people, Pacific Islander people, Africans in this country and, and across the world and sometimes the music, like you said, that I get sent is just not up to par like it's really really hard to you know say no to possibly interviewing someone or possibly having them on the show because the content it's never it's not the swearing it's the it's the explicit language of like homophobia transphobia misogyny that is so off-putting and so difficult to promote and love on their music as a black woman who who presents a show who loves black culture Um, and so it's pretty special to have someone like yourself stand up and and make that and make that point? Well, it's just not good enough. Like, mm. because, you know, we as black men, uh, you know, like we, <laughs> like we have this platform and we ask, uh, like, black women or other marginalised communities to get behind us. But then at the same time, uh, when we have a microphone, we'll rip down those same people so it's like I just like for me I just think it's disgusting and it's not good enough and it's not about like uh, taking away from the movement or anything it's like it's actually the core central of what the movement should be about because like yes this is about people of colour and and our communities being oppressed but it is a good human being issue like Mm -hmm. it it isn't just about colour it's about like forms of oppression like I never compare experiences of oppression because they're unique but at the same time like unless you are a white straight uh cis male who is rich and able-bodied you've felt some form of oppression um and, and the mechanism that oppresses all of us is the same like it's itself and other it's oppressing us because we are different that's what's marginalizing us and for me it's about like yes like this album is very specific to my struggle as an Indigenous person, but it's, like, it's a struggle of humanity. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, you know, like, if you listen to my album, like, I, there is no form of misogyny. There is right. no form of homophobia. Like, none of that will ever be in my music because it's disgusting. It's like, how can you make a pro-black album yet rip down like oppressed communities like so for me i just think that's like something we have to address like it's 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 so important yeah it's amazing as well because it's you know it's one thing in the music and one thing within the context but also people not recognizing the structural um benefits of being 
of, of patriarchy within a patriarchal <laughs> society. So there's one thing to say, yeah, the music and, um, you know, artists who are misogynistic and homophobic and transphobic and whatever within their music, it's, it's problematic in that sense. But it's also problematic for our people who, you know, for me, my people, I'm from the African community, my people who um, might have a sense of their experiences of oppression and, and whatever but don't have a sense of what they also benefit from within this system of, you know, heteronormative, patriarchal yeah. society. Yeah, for me, understanding your privilege is at the, like, that's at the key of all of this for, for everyone. Like, understanding your privilege is but because, look, you can't control what privileges are given to you, but if you don't take the time to understand what they are, then you just perpetrate the system, you just uphold that patriarchy, you just uphold those systems of oppression. So you have to recognize what your privilege is so that you are able to use that in a way that isn't going to be at the detriment of others, you know? Yeah. Like, because at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm a hetero-presenting man, like, I have privilege. So, like, I have to understand what that is. And at the same time, I'm not like looking to women to educate me about that. Yes, it's important to listen and and uh, and and read, but at the same time, like I'm not saying, "Yo, make me less misogynistic." Right. That's not your job, right. you know. Like that's on me because that's my privilege. Like I have to understand that, and that's I think for everyone because you you have to understand your motivation for change, like your own stake in it, because that's what's going to keep you uh, present in the long game. Because like this change that we're after, it's not like, look, the, the truth is like the the trendiness of, of having these conversations is going to die down. Like this isn't necessarily a window of opportunity for change because the change that we want is long game. Right. So I think really important while we have these conversations it's about helping people understand their motivation for staying on that journey for long game and the truth is like whether you're white or, or whatever like regardless of choosing like color to talk about it it's like the, the truth is like you are like 95 percent of us are, are like in some form of oppression right. and it's like if we don't recognize our privilege, like, like if we can recognize our own oppression and what's keeping us down, then you can connect to the fact that if you don't address your privilege, you're causing that oppression for someone else. Yeah. It's amazing because oftentimes what happens is when you're kind of at the very bottom of that totem pole is that, you know, you are the... Um, you know, people might progress and be able to get to a point in their lives where things are okay for them, but you, especially if you experience an intersectional identity, it's very hard to then mobilise the same people who've already won their rights to do X, Y and Z um, to continue fighting for you until you get you get to the end. But, you know, I guess it's the, it's, the, it's the question that's asked on this show every single week and has been for the last two and a half years, um, and it is how are we going to get to where we want to go um, where all of us experience the same kind of equity uh, as each other. So, yeah, it's a big conversation and I'm glad to be having it with you. Um, I want to play a track now. This one is Stand for Something. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, like I think this song, um, like it comes at a point in the album 
where it's kind of reflecting on like like the reason why I have to be so explicit with uh, the subject and and it's just saying you know like um, I think my favorite line like my people always equal so we always stand for something mm. like you know like yeah we weren't class as citizens in this country until 67 but we were people always we've always been human like this is about our humanity about all of us so like if you treat us like this like you're you're losing your humanity because we are you um so i think stand for something uh it's just it's about like it's about like holding myself accountable as well like because i i want to be a part of this change like i don't want to be a part of that that problem so i think it's just a song where i'm i guess i'm going kind of inside accepting like the anger and the pain but but coming back to I guess that that place of of love and compassion. Hey, you mentioned the um, music industry not necessarily in in Australia not being particularly receptive to this project five years ago. Have you seen any kind of changes in the last five years that have been positive, or do you think there's still just way too much more progress before we get to a point where things are a little bit more equitable? Um, I think it's. Uh, changing framework. So, uh, for me, like, I, you know, I think it's really interesting how what you were talking about, like, you know, like, if people are able to get out um, of the cycle themselves and then they, like, kind of become disenfranchised from, like, their own community. And for, for me, it's like, you know, I'm in a position now, like, where I could go and sign a label deal, I could mm-hmm. go sign a publishing deal, and I'll be right, you know, like, I'll be good, but that won't change anything because uh, industry, like, wasn't, you know, like, any industry, whether it's music, whether it's journalists, any industry in Australia is from a system of oppression. Like, mm-hmm. it upholds systematic oppression within it. So, for me, it's not so much about just getting a seat at the table, it's about building our own tables so we can have as many seats as we want um so for me i'm in the process of uh starting my own label and my own publishing company Uh, yes because you know like we when i was sitting down showing different label execs or whatever this album they couldn't understand it um in the context and it's so funny listening to stand for something just now because it's like just how relevant is it's Mm. like i say will it take another Black, will it take another life for you to get up to date with the state of inequality between race? Mm-hmm. And that's like literally, I put the, I I only have the chance to put this album out and it to be heard because George Floyd died. Like, and we cared more about a black body on the other side of the world than like what's going on in our own country. So for me, you know, like the, the truth is, like, it's very easy to point out what's wrong with industry, but I'm more concerned about building what's going to replace what we want to tear down um, because, you know, it's not just about me and my artist project. It's, it's about trying to change the landscape and, and, and something that's going to benefit all of all of my community. And, and I'm not really looking for old white men to do that for me because I know they can't. So I'm just going to do it myself. It's amazing because a lot of conversations that I've had with um, artists based here in Melbourne, whether they're First Nations or African, um, has been a lot a lot about this in the last couple of years. You know, the industry 
20 years ago, the hip-hop industry in Australia 20 years ago was completely overrun by, by like, white hip-hop artists and the folks who were making stuff were not, you know, selling out shows and now that has really started to change and the face, in inverted commas, of hip-hop is changing um, and it seems that lots of these big labels and, and industry types are kind of scrambling to get get into this hot thing um, and at this point the artists have totally moved on from them and are finding ways to make it make sense and make it work for themselves independently which is just it's just incredible yeah because I think like you know it's, I don't take self-determination for granted right. like my dad was born before 67 so like he wasn't cast like, our country didn't even grant him the rights of a human being. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I've seen, like, so, you know, if I'm sitting down at the label and they're like, yeah, like, we should, like, do a deal and we'll take 81% of your passes, I'm like, no. Like, that's, no, like, I don't want Final Say to be to a old white dude. Like, that's not what this is about. Like, and I think, um, for me, like, it's so important to have, control of of my music and of my own career you know and I think for me whether or not artists want to work with me when I do a label like uh, for me it's also just showing an example that like you can do this like you don't have to bend to a system that doesn't serve us you know like it doesn't represent us so it's about just trying to i I guess show show a different pathway Mm -hmm. um and it look i like it's it's long and it's super hard and like you know like learning how to run businesses and all all that is it's not like like light work like it's you know you really kind of have to invest a lot of time and a lot of money i guess the thing is like if you're an independent artist if a project, like an album's going to cost you however many thousands of dollars, that's your thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so, you know, it goes, there's a lot that goes into it, but I, I just think it's like, it's so worth it because it's about trying to build something for, for all of us, like for, for our community. Like, and for me, it's about like trying to build a culture and a space that like, it doesn't rely on our industry. Like, because the, the truth is, is like, you know, like, whatever, if it's a radio station or a label or this or that, like, yeah, they're going to, like, want to, um, they're going to want to, like, uh, plug you and, and serve your music when it's mutually beneficial for them. Right. But this album five years ago wasn't mutually beneficial for anyone, so no one cared about it. Right. So for me, it's like trying to create a space where artists don't have to, uh, like, filter or navigate their art like they can just actually be themselves and put it out whether or not a certain radio station will add it or a certain playlist will add it like just so they can actually genuinely start expressing themselves and i think that will not only be beneficial for like the artists here but it's going to push our art and our culture in australia to a place that's not worrying about if I don't get a triple J ad, then my career isn't successful, you know, like, cause that doesn't actually create art. Like that's creating a product. And I think, you know, music should be expression. So like, I want our industry to have artists, you know, like I want our industry to have people who are telling stories. Like, and it's not that we don't have that, but it's only serving a select kind of artist. Yeah. 
and it's amazing because you're right, it will impact the art without the, all of the noise of the expectations and of this industry that isn't even real necessarily. Um, the art will be served, right? The, it'll, it'll give people the time and brain space and capacity to do and say what it is that they want to do from their heart. Um, and, you know, we know that that's going to just be amazing. Definitely. And I think, like, that's the thing is it's uh, the industry is kind of a middleman, like, yeah. in between the yeah. artist consumer exactly and and I, I definitely think like the audience is way more intelligent uh than the industry wants us to believe you know they like they want us to create something that they can make lots of money off and it's going to be great and this and that but like the audience is actually craving authenticity and it's craving these stories and yeah like it, it's going to take longer for you to kind of build your own path and be genuine but it's like if you get to where you're going to where you want to go and you do it your way, when you get there, you're going to be able to say whatever you want. You're going to be able to make whatever music you want. Like, your art will be real. It won't be, like, you won't be restricted to a corporation telling you, like, if that song can or can't come out. Like, that's... Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, for me, it's just... It's so important that, like, we... We have the capacity to to be the change that we want. Like, we don't have to ask for permission anymore. Yeah. It's, it's very exciting. It's very exciting that we're at this stage. I remember, you know, how many years ago that we weren't quite quite here, but it's really special to have yourself and other artists um, in this country take that step and make these explicit points and, and do the work. And thank you for this album. It was amazing. And I think that folks can check it out wherever they buy their music. I would highly suggest doing that. And I want to um, leave this chat with the title track of the album, Black Black Thoughts. Ziggy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I have had a really fabulous time today on the show. Two pretty long interviews with some incredibly thoughtful people. Big shout out to Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson, who's a Gompa woman of the Kwandamuka people and is Professor of Indigenous Research at RMIT University. She's also the author of a number of books, including Talking Up to the White Woman, which is a seminal text and it was released 20 years ago and it looks at the Indigenous, in, at Indigenous women's views and experiences within the context of Western feminism. The 20th anniversary edition of the book is being released tomorrow through University of Queensland Press, but it has never been out of print and I would highly suggest you grab a copy and if you can grab the 20th anniversary edition of the book um, there's a beautiful essay at the beginning and some reflection at the end big thanks also to Ziggy Ramo who is an artist based in Sydney and he's just released his new album Black Thoughts like I said definitely grab that album it's absolutely incredible thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Rap a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.